do make sure you guys grab some chocolate off the table back there. That is for the dads first. And then, let's be honest, there'll probably be a little leftover for everybody else. All right, so, hey, uh, we are starting a new series. Uh, it's going to span this weekend to uh, right about the July 4th weekend, just kind of in between Juneteenth and the 4th of July, talking about this idea of waging peace. And in waging peace, we are talking about bringing the kingdom of God with us wherever we go and finding what God is doing in the places where we exist and and in the places where we uh, are doing life. And I want to just kind of start with a uh, just a recognition that uh, today is uh, June 19th. It's Father's Day. There's a lot of things going on. but it's also, uh, it's also the day that we remember the end of slavery in the United States. And that is a really good thing for us as a community to celebrate. That's why we wanted to be part of the Juneteenth celebration uh, yesterday uh, that happened at Silver Springs Park. We gave away, I think, something like 400 uh, snow cones yesterday. It was busy. We, we started with these big gallon jugs of snow cone syrup. We burned through two of those, and then our other two that we had were like about halfway gone. I don't know how many cups we gave away. We, had, we made multiple trips to the store for more ice because uh, it was hot and everybody wanted a snow cone. And so it was really fun. It was really fun. It was great to watch the Color 10 uh, you know, news like everybody who they interviewed was holding one of our little cups <laughs> at the Juneteenth celebration and just, you know, like clearly between bites of their snow cone talking to their reporters or whatever. Uh, you know, praise God. What a, great, what a great way for us to plug into our community. God bless everybody who volunteered. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I, I think this is, it is right. It is good for us as a community to plug in and bless others as we celebrate the end of slavery. You know, slavery in the United States lasted longer than our country is old. Uh, we are still unpacking the long-term impacts of that. And so recognizing this good thing, uh, while we also learn about the history that maybe some of us didn't get, at least people my age and uh, older didn't get uh, when we were growing up in school, I think it's really important for us as kingdom people. And so we, we just want to say, hey, praise God. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that we want to talk about this is because the Bible is really a story of God leading people out of slavery and out of uh, bondage to sin and death into freedom and into emancipation and liberation in God. And so today, uh, we're going to talk about what that looks like. First, though, I thought uh, I would just, you know, whatever else I say today, I wanted you guys to get a really good sermon, so I wanted to play a Bible Project video. So here we go. We've got that. Common and we're gonna... in most languages, people can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. 
The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting. It also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. That's what we mean when we say we're waging peace. When we say we're trying to bring shalom to the world, we're inviting God's reign and rule. We're inviting his kingdom and his leadership into our lives and making that the primary focus. And I love what they said in this video about shalom isn't just the absence of conflict or the absence of... Um, war or something like that. It's something deeper. It's when we move into a more complete wholeness where we don't have a fractured or disjointed view of reality, but we have a view of reality that is conformed to the Word of God and to what God is leading us into. And it's when we submit to God that that is when we truly experience peace. That's why today's message is about being emancipated through submission. This is an upside-down kingdom. The things of the, the, the kingdom of God work differently than our best human ideas when we rely on our own understanding. They work differently than the kingdoms of the world. And what we find in the scriptures over and over and over again is this idea that when God gets his way, there is shalom. There is peace. There is abundance 
and there is plenty, and God's good world is restored, the heaven that we hope for in the future breaks into our present existence, and the kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven, we begin to experience it. And so one of the reasons I wanted to talk about uh, the passage we're looking at today is that You know, this idea of exodus, this idea of God bringing humanity out of slavery to sin and death, this is really the overarching narrative of the whole Bible. If you were a good Jew, if you were a good Hebrew, you would understand that Passover is like the most important holiday on on earth. It's like the biggest deal ever. Passover is, is the day when the Israelites would celebrate uh, the, the emancipation of their people, of their people coming out of slavery in Egypt and coming into the promised land through God's miraculous power, delivering the people of Israel from the powers and principalities of Egypt and the gods behind those, that government. That God showed that he was the true Lord of all creation by bringing his people who could not defend themselves and could not deliver themselves out of slavery. And so God does this, and he brings the people into, uh, out, of, out of Egypt and into the promised land. Of course, there's lots of bumps and, 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 and hang-ups along the way. And then when they get there, uh, they kind of they sort of turn back into Egypt in a way. Like, they kind of start doing the same things that Egypt did, following other gods, making things that are not God the priority, and turning away from the Lord, not believing the Lord, not trusting God, never practicing jubilee, never taking care of the poor, uh, re, re, just like forgetting the Sabbath and not, not taking care of the orphan and widow in their midst. And so God has to send the people of Israel into exile again. And so they kind of go back to Egypt. They go back into Babylon and they are exiled. And they cry out to God again. And that's when Jeremiah and Isaiah start to prophesy of the coming king, the, to prophesy of the coming Messiah and say, someday there will be another king. There'll be another king like David. There'll be another king and another leader like Moses that will lead us out of this exile and back into the promised land and back into God's presence, back into relationship with God. And though the people do get, you know, through Nehemiah, they get to to come back to the land. They, They start to rebuild the wall and the temple and all those good things. You know, you kind of get the sense at the end of Nehemiah, it's like, well, but it's just, it's not really the way it's supposed to be. There's something missing here. It really doesn't have the same glory that it had before, and God isn't present among his people the way it should have been before. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and Jesus is the ultimate liberator. He is the ultimate Messiah. He is bringing not just the people of Israel out of slavery— but all of humanity and restoring what was broken in Eden by bringing people into real freedom through relationship with God and being able to love God. And it is this this story of the grand exodus of all humanity that the whole Bible tells. And it is Jesus himself who appears to us powerfully and reveals what shalom really is and what shalom really looks like. And then what he does is mind-blowing. He says, okay, and now you, you get to go into all the world and make disciples of me. And as you do that, as you submit to me, I go with you. I go with you. 
and you will redeem and, and save all of God's good creation as you make disciples. And I will be with you until the end of the age. And we hope for the renewal of all things. And while we wait, we do that. We do that disciple-making work. But I think that sometimes, especially because of the culture that we live in, we get this idea that freedom is something other than what God says that it is. We think freedom is freedom to do whatever we want. Freedom to pursue Pursue happiness, how we think we will get that. We think freedom is unlimited self-expression. You know, say whatever you want, do whatever you want. Follow your heart. That's, that's the prophets of our age. That's the, that's the message of our age. That really the problem in this world is limits. And if we could just get rid of limits, then we would be okay. But I think the thing that God wants us to reflect on today is what happened after the people of Israel came out of Egypt? What did God do next? And how did God lead and liberate his, his people after they came out of Egypt? And this is what happened in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. Now, here's the thing. I can't really convince you that God said any of the things in this book. That is something that you have to decide for yourself. Do you really think that when we read the scriptures that God spoke these words? That's important. Because if we don't believe that, I have nothing else to say that will be convincing or powerful or life-changing. We, I think, should believe that God spoke all these words. This isn't just my best idea. This isn't just what I want. We're not doing any of this because Josh has a passion or I'm living my bliss and I'm inviting you along on my own personal journey. We as a community are here to follow God. And if you ever think I'm not following God, please show me the scriptures that show me that I'm not. And I'll repent to the best of my ability. I'm not perfect at this. But God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea 
and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servants, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The thing that God does when he brings the people out of slavery and into freedom is he leads them further and closer to himself. And he gives the people commands so that they can be in right relationship with him and each other. It isn't for God's ego. It isn't for the people to just do whatever they want. God brings people into freedom out of slavery, out of exile, by leading them to himself. God doesn't lead us to be free of God. That is not the story that we're telling, and that is not the story that we're doing. What we are doing is we are trying to learn how to love God and how to honor God with our whole lives. That every aspect of our being, the way that we think about the things that are deep and important to us, are informed by God. And so God gives the law, and God gives all these commandments. Some people would count them up. You know, there's different ways you can count the commandments and the, and the ways that you can count them up. But one, one number of all the commandments in the law of Moses is 613. That there might be six, and there's at least, at least 613 specific commands of God about how to live and how to order our lives and how to, uh, how to do this thing called faith in God, how to be people who are of the book, how to be people who exist in this covenant relationship with the God of the universe in order that he might reveal himself to a broken humanity and redeem and save the world from its sin. And so God reveals himself through this law, through this list of commandments, summed up nicely in these Ten Commandments, you know, it's pretty hard to find a problem with those, right? I mean, those are, those are pretty, pretty, uh, pretty big deal commandments. Like, don't kill people, right? Don't murder anybody, right? Seems, seems basic enough, right? Seems basic enough. You know, I think here's, 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 here's something to think about. Moses needed to be told that. And if you remember Moses' history... I think it makes sense that, that Moses needed to be told not to murder anybody because Moses, when he was living in privilege, when he was living in, uh, in the palace and discovered that he was a Hebrew after many years, discovering that he was adopted, discovering that he had kind of escaped the persecution of his people, and, uh, and <laughs> he, he got into an argument with a guy uh, who was mistreating one of, the, one of the Hebrews, and it says that Moses got so angry that he killed him. Like Moses himself needed to be told not to murder people. There are things in the Word of God that seem like they should be obvious that I often need to be told. I often need to be told not to do things that I want to do. 
And so God doesn't lead us to freedom from himself. He leads us to freedom in himself. He leads us to freedom and abundance and true peace and true shalom by leading us deeper into his leadership and his love. Of course, love is really at the base of all these commands, right? Don't, don't murder people. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't, don't, you know, be full of envy and desire and covetousness for something that someone, for someone, for what other people have, right? Like, don't, don't just be full of envy because your life isn't as good as someone else's. That, that leads to hate. That leads, that'll tear your soul up. And you'll be a miserable person, and you will make everyone around you miserable if you do that. You can't, you can't harbor that stuff in your heart. You got to honor your parents, even if they do a bad job sometimes, or maybe if they do a really job. Being able to come to a place where we can forgive them, being able to come to a place where we can say, you know what, they kept me alive. You know, I, I came into the world because of them, at least, at the very least. That's important. It's important to be able to let God judge our parents. and It's important to be able to honor them, even with their flaws, even recognizing their weaknesses. And it's important for God to be first in our lives and for us to honor him. You know, Jesus summed up these uh, Ten Commandments this way. You know, he said it this way. He said in Matthew 20, some people were arguing about, okay, which, but yeah, all right, but which laws are more important than others, right? Like, which ones matter the most, right? Which, which, are, the, which are the laws that we really have to follow, and what, what laws can we kind of fudge on? Or what, which one takes priority, right? There was a debate in Jesus' day. Guess what? There's a debate in our day about what's most important, and what really matters, what counts as main and plain, what counts as, as important enough to actually follow and do, And so some, some Pharisees, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, yeah, they got him. They got those other guys. He got the Democrats. He got the Republicans. Look at him laying into those people that we don't like. We love it when, when he lays into those people that we don't like, right? We love it when God is on our side against those other people. Get him. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And I think what's important to keep in mind here is that when Jesus is saying all the law hangs on these two, uh, on these two uh, commandments, he is quoting Scripture. He's quoting the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all your strength. Bind his commandments on your wrists and, and foreheads and, and, and talk about it when you're at the table and teach your kids, teach your kids to obey the Lord and to fear the Lord. Like, he's quoting scripture when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And he's quoting Leviticus 19, 18 when he says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is quoting the Bible there. He's quoting Leviticus, Leviticus, 
right? That book that is really weird that I, I think, like, is, not, is this necessary? Is this one really that important? Leviticus, I spent, you know, I know you all in the morning when you wake up to study the scripture, which you're doing every day, right? Yeah. Like, so when we wake up to study the scripture, I think, you know, I just, I need to feed my soul. Leviticus, that's it. That's where I'm going, right? I'm going to go to Leviticus to find some encouragement for today and hope for tomorrow. Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself is Leviticus. But there is a question of priority, and Jesus does answer that. Jesus answers the question of priority this way. He says, all the law and the prophet hang on these two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. Later on, Jesus says it this way. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The thing is, is freedom comes when God is in charge. Freedom comes and liberation and abundance and shalom and all these things come when God is in charge. And God doesn't leave us alone. God didn't, you know, deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. He didn't bring everybody out of the slavery, drop them off in the desert and say, peace out, guys. Live, laugh, love. You know, follow your heart. It's cool. Whatever you want to do, it'll be great. That's not how it happened. That's not how it works. God calls us into deeper obedience, and this is a kingdom principle. The more we obey and trust God, the more freedom we find. And I know that this is, this is kind of a heavy, heavy sermon. This is kind of a heavy, heavy thing to be thinking about. Hey, Josh, come on. It's Juneteenth. It's, it's, you know, we're talking about liberation. Come on, Fourth of July, Independence Day is coming up. You know, it's summertime. We want the fun. We want the fun. We want the good, we want the good inspiring verses. We want the good times. Here's the thing. This, this is the good stuff. Good stuff doesn't come from having a great barbecue. The good life is more than just materialism and the, and the accumulation of things. The good life is more than just being popular and being liked by people. The good life is more than me and my family having everything that we want. The good life is so much deeper than that. And the shalom peace of God that comes to the whole earth comes as we are shaped and formed by Jesus Christ. And by learning to, lear- learning to listen to and obey his commands. That's what it means to love him and to receive his love and his leadership in our life. And here's the good news. He's not leaving us alone on this journey. He's not just giving us this big list of things to do and then checking out. He's not just sending us on like errands, like on a grocery run, and saying, just do all this stuff. And you'll be-. No, he's... He's going to be with us, and he's going to live in us. And when we experience the power and the presence of God's Spirit when we worship, when we remind each other of the truth, when we pray for each other, and when we commune at this table remembering his death and resurrection, God is at work in our midst, changing us and growing us into the people that 
he has called us to be. And it is in him that we find our freedom. It is in him that we find peace and that we find true love. The truth is, is that kingdom subjects have greater freedom than the citizens of any other government. And if you can subject yourself to Jesus' leadership, you find his mercy, you find his grace, you find his power flowing within you and through you. That following Jesus and finding him makes us free. You know, the, the, the kids upstairs today, they're learning about Acts chapter 5, when the apostles, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the people who were following Jesus, the sent ones, the messengers, the, the brand ambassadors, if you will, of Jesus, right? The brand ambassadors of Jesus, that's what apostles are. They're brand ambassadors, right? They're loyal to their brand, and they're telling you about this thing that they love, and the brand is Jesus and his kind of life. And so the brand ambassadors, they're out here, and they're, um, they're, they're sharing the love of God, and they're sharing the story. They're telling the people, hey, look, this is what Jesus did. This is who he is, and this is what you're invited into. And then as people trust that, and as they come to Jesus, they're getting healed. Their bodies are being restored. Their relationships are being restored. Justice and mercy are being spread throughout the earth because people can say, you know what, what I want is less important than love for my brother. What I want is less important than your need. And I can share what I have, and I can adjust my agenda. I can change what it is that I want to do because I can submit to God's leadership. I can submit to the law of Christ, which says that some of what I have belongs to you. And I'm able to share that. They're able to form these kind of new families, these new units of economic redistribution and sharing. And the abundance of God's creation is able to be enjoyed because selfishness is knocked off, because they're challenged to love each other in real and practical ways. And these kingdom subjects overturn the world, right? No in the face of great persecution, you know, in jail. Like, so much of what we have written in the scriptures comes from people who uh, were not in charge of government. In fact, they were quite the opposite. They were powerless in the government structure. You know, Paul makes one appeal to his citizenship, and that, that ends up in him getting executed. You know, that, that ends up in him getting to Rome and, uh, and, and being knocked out. Like, God's kingdom, if, if we embrace it, means that we don't have to have all the power, that we don't have to have the position of authority, that we don't have to have the approval of friends or family, that we don't have to get all the likes, that we don't have to get all the retweets, that we can just be who we are, and God will work through that as we submit to him. The good news of Jesus Christ is that whatever mistakes you make, you can be forgiven, and God can still work through you. That's the gospel. And God will be with us as we look to him. And so I want to I transition into prayer time, but I kind of want to just, this is going to seem like a non sequitur, and it may or may not fit with kind of the themes of everything else. Uh, but as I've been praying and um, preparing, I felt like God said, okay, but Josh, you have to put this into practice 
And you need, to, you need to demonstrate for people that it's okay to say that you're wrong. We practice it every Sunday when we confess our sins. That's, that's practice. That's rehearsal, right? We're trying to get in that habit of being able to say, look, I'm, I, my life is a mess. I need God to forgive me. And I turn to him and I follow him again today. And so I, as I was praying, I just felt like God was convicting me of really having a hard heart. And particularly of having a hard heart to the lost. I think that uh, it is not wrong to say that humanity is lost. Humanity is really not on a good trajectory, right? Like it is not, (laughs) the future does not look bright. It does not look hopeful. And I think that oftentimes I've kind of hidden in theology. I've hidden in correct thinking, and I've hidden in just thinking, you know, if I can just study the Bible enough, if I can just get the commands enough right, if I can just do this right, then I, then I won't be lost. And there's like a half-truth in there, right? Like there's a, there's a lie that is so tempting to believe in that because it is, it is so close to the truth. But that's not the gospel, The law is meant to bring clarity and freedom and submission to God does actually liberate us, but the law in itself is not enough. We need the gospel. The gospel is that God forgives us when we fail to live up to the law. And I have failed to live up to the law of love. I failed to live up to the law in this way. I've, I've grown judgmental to the lost in our community. I've grown judgmental and hard to people who don't understand the way people who don't know what God is saying and what God is doing. And I've grown just snarky and mean. And I think that God wants to give me compassion for the lost. Here's how I think God wants to give me compassion for the lost. And I want to invite you to consider maybe this, maybe this rings true with you. Maybe if you've followed me, I've given this to you, and I'm sorry. But I think the way that we find compassion for the lost is we realize that we ourselves rose the lost. That we are all in need of God's redemption and saving grace. That it will never be true that we are anything more than sinners who need God's love and forgiveness. And so I've got a hardness in my heart I've kind of started repenting from it, but I felt like I needed to say something public. I've got a hardness in my heart that I need to repent from. And my heart needs to become oriented again to people who do not know the Lord, who don't know Jesus, who are just confused and kind of fumbling through life. I was listening to Jay Pathak, who's our national director, say, you know, he was talking about uh, this kind of idea, and I just was cut to the heart. We were up in Davenport, uh, which is a seven-hour drive, and when you get to Davenport, it's like, yay, Davenport. You know, but, <laughs> but, but God was there at that meeting, and God was at work, and, and Jay was talking about how, you know, the emails that pastors get. You know, he's talking to a room of pastors, you know, and he's like, it's like, you know, you, pastors, you get the emails, you know, oh, you didn't have the right size diaper, in this room, you know, you had the size above and you had the size below, but you didn't have the right size diaper, and so it wasn't, you know, that caused a problem, and that, that's a problem, like if you're a parent, I've been a parent, I know that's a problem, like I don't, I don't want that situation, you know, 
oh, the coffee wasn't in the right place. You know, the place where we're putting the coffee, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, people can't get to it. It's causing all this frustration. You know, the coffee's in the wrong place, you know. Or the, you know, we need more signs. We need this, that, you know. And Jay said, you know, I would just like to invite you as pastors to consider that song, Amazing Grace. How much of what you're dealing with on a daily basis is going to matter in 10,000 years? Because whether or not people come to Jesus Christ and are saved and redeemed by his love, that will definitely matter in 10,000 years. And I was cut to the heart. And I felt like God just said, you need to have compassion for the lost. Here's the email that pastors never get. Pastors never get the email from the person who says, you know, my life is kind of a mess, but if somebody would just invite me to church, if someone would just share the gospel with me, then, and I could, I could start learning to follow Jesus, then, then maybe like my marriage would straighten out and I wouldn't get a divorce, and like I, my kids would be okay, and like my depression could get lifted, could get, could get straightened out, and my life would be saved. Pastors never get that email. And he said, pastors, you have to learn to stop listening to the complaints of believers to hear what unbelievers are crying out for because they won't know how to tell you. And I need to do that. And I'm sorry for not making that a priority. I'm sorry that I have not made compassion for people who don't know Christ the priority in our church. And I need to repent from that and I'm going to be getting prayer for that this morning. Would you stand?